The University of York's The Story of Things Snapshot. Podcasting about the most interesting and innovative research at the University of York. Welcome to this run of The Story of Things Snapshots, giving some more insights into different areas of research at the University of York. I'm Philippa Gearing and I'm with Dr Chris Rennick, who is a senior lecturer in modern history in the Department of History. Hi Chris. Hi. Well, I wanted to start by asking you really about your most recent book, which is called Bread for All, published by Penguin. It is about the history of the welfare state, and it has been, I think, long-listed for the Orwell Prize. That's right, yep. And shortlisted for the Longman History Today Prize as well. That is correct, yes. Well, congratulations. Thank you very much. We await bated breath for the result. Now, I'm not a historian. I'm not an economist. I'm not a politician. Is this a book for me? Uh, I'd like to think so. I'd like to urge you to go and buy it, obviously. Uh, yes, <laughs> obviously it, I've got a copy already. Indeed. Uh, it's written very much with the non-specialist in mind, and it's written with the idea of challenging some of the preconceptions that people might have. Going back to when the welfare state was introduced, what was its reception? Was it was it something that was felt that was needed, that there was general acceptance, or was it quite a difficult battle? The popular image of the welfare state is that it was a kind of big bang moment that post the Second World War with the Labour government that we got this moment where an entire infrastructure called the welfare state was brought into existence. And what I do in the book is try to explore what you might call the deep history of the welfare state and try to explain how it was that actually most of that stuff was in place already and the ideas have been discussed ideas have been accepted and that um, people were primed for it and that they were they were ready for its creation after the second world war i'm just thinking of that moment when um you know the leaflets about the welfare state would have landed on people's doormats yeah and that huge change when the welfare state as we know it was introduced after the second world war the level of taxation in national insurance was a massive, massive increase to what people had been used to before. It was absolutely huge. National insurance existed before the Second World War. Um, It's just simply the case that not everybody was enrolled on the scheme um, because it was uh, for people in particular professions and those professions or occupations were widened gradually over a period of 50 years. But it was also levied at a, a much lower rate than it was after the Second World War. But although some people are quite grumpy about having to pay much more in in national insurance, people come to accept it and are happy with it because of the security that it provides. I'm wondering about the the rhetoric that surrounds uh, benefits, and there's definitely an element of shaming surrounding benefits. I've had benefits. You know, I get child benefit, and I'm about to take maternity, statutory maternity benefits. So, you know, there's a whole range, but it it tends to have these sort of negative connotations. Is, Is that relationship between shame... And this sort of intervention, new? The idea of there being shame of some kind connected with claiming benefits or or state payments of some kind is a really old idea. It's it's hundreds of years old, really. Um, It goes back to the uh, the system that existed before the welfare state, which was called the poor law. And and the idea that, that actually... You should be ashamed in some way if you're needing to claim unemployment benefit, and that's where the idea of national insurance comes from, really, as a as a kind of solution to that. The idea that the things that we call the welfare state are are really a form of insurance. It's a form of social insurance, and so 
connected up with this question of morality is the question of how we pay for things, not just how it is that we pay out for things. And um, there's a long history, a long debate that I cover in the book, that most people are happy for people to receive things and they're happy for themselves to receive things as long as they feel that they have paid into the system, to use a phrase that we hear a lot, and therefore deserve the things that come out of it. One of the big breakthroughs, I suppose we could call it, comes in in the 50s and 60s, where what we discover is actually that the people who do best out of the welfare state are middle class people. And the reason that they do best out of it is that the welfare state is not just about paying people benefits, it's about collecting taxes as well. Uh, and it's about the way in which we set levels of taxation, um, the proportions of income that people of different classes pay into the system versus the benefits that they get out. And actually, in terms of the services and the payments that governments provide to people over their lifetimes, middle class people do very well out of the welfare state. It's just that they don't necessarily get the kind of assistance that's captured in that particular moment of, say, for example, unemployment benefit. Yeah. And part of that issue of shame and, and part of the problem with our understanding of the welfare state is we have, we have a, a narrow understanding of the kinds of things that it does and a narrow understanding of the kinds of people who benefit from it. And, and, and the fact is that we all benefit from it in one way or another and the people who benefit from it most are not necessarily the people that you might think it is. That question of deserve is quite interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, I'm thinking of, of contemporary um, arguments about, you know, obesity and smoking and whether people then deserve to access certain services in the NHS. There is a long history uh, that goes back, not, not just over the 100, 150 years that I cover in, in, in my book, but goes back hundreds of years before that, that comes with this classic distinction between the deserving and the undeserving poor. Um, it's not the case that, that, that people have never thought that we should give money to the poor. Um, it's that in, in handing over money or redistributing uh, money via the state, the argument has always been about, well, who is it that deserves to receive that money? Um, people of almost every political persuasion believe that the poor deserve some kind of either handout or redistributed wealth. It's just a question of figuring out how best to target those things. And like you say, it's never actually straightforward when it comes to figuring out who the deserving and the undeserving poor are. And one of the uh, topics that you raise there is is health, right? And the question with obesity about, you know, is it something that, that someone has ended up obese and it's actually their own fault rather than, than something that has happened to them? Well, that's an incredibly complex question, isn't it? And I guess um, thinking about a topic like obesity, the question is, well does someone end up obese because the food that they can buy is bad for them? Um, that's one example. I mean, to pick another example that's been in the news recently, should the NHS be paying for people who end up in hospital because they've got drunk? But is it the case that even if you could figure out, for example, who is deserving and who's undeserving, would it make sense to not pay for the undeserving because the kind of administrative costs that come with figuring that out, uh, it actually isn't worth it in the grand budget of things. So um, to relate it back to, to another example, with unemployment benefit, people have massively inflated ideas about how much 
of the welfare budget goes on people claiming unemployment benefit. They tend to think it's the answer is somewhere in the region that half of the social security budget goes on paying for unemployed people when the actual answer is closer to 5%. So actually the amount of money you have to plough into figuring out what percentage of that 5% of the budget is going on something you might consider to be an illegitimate cost you probably spend much more money figuring out who those people are than you would actually just handing over the money. Does it make any sense to pursue answers to these questions? And in a lot of cases, the answer is no. But it's obviously something that makes headlines quite often, isn't it? Sort of benefit scroungers and the skivers versus the strivers. And, you know, that sort of rhetoric sort of hangs around the welfare state. And reading what you've written, I was really struck by a sense of partnership when the welfare state was introduced between state and employer and individual and a kind of almost a sense of nation building following the second world war but that doesn't seem to be where we are today yeah i'd say so i mean the the post-war settlement is founded as you say on the idea of partnership and the idea that uh, that everyone pays in because it's because it's an insurance policy and everybody benefits from it individuals benefit from it Um, employers benefit from the fact that there's an insurance policy that pays things like sick pay but in a broader sense um, organisations large and small benefit from for example a well-educated population that has the skills that they require and a healthy workforce and a healthy workforce that that doesn't get sick in the first place now if we think about what's the current situation and a lot of the debates about large um, large firms I mean we'll often hear about things like zero hour contracts right now zero hours contracts are not a problem in their own right so when I was 18 I had a zero hours contract because what I worked during me I worked in a library so mm-hmm. uh, uh, I worked during my holidays as, as a student and um, I was able to work for uh, you know entire weeks during the holidays and if I popped back home I'd work you know six hours on a Saturday or something there's nothing wrong with a zero hours contract from that point of view where it becomes a problem is where people are working 36 hours a week or more but legally have a zero hours contract so they are a full-time employee but they are getting none of the rights of being a full-time employee and also the firm that employs them is able to dodge the liabilities that come with having a full-time workforce uber delivery these kinds of these kinds of companies they're symptoms of a hollowing out of the tax base effectively the reclassification of individuals as self-employed rather than employees, this kind of thing, it creates serious questions about how it is that you pay for an insurance policy of of, of this kind, basically, once you have organisations that aren't paying it. And this is a major challenge. Um, It doesn't just relate to the welfare state as we think about it it relates more generally to that that broader sense that um, people trust that there is fairness at the heart of the tax system and when you were doing the research did you know because there's so many stories coming up in the papers about various different parts of the welfare state did you sort of think oh hold on a minute I've heard that argument before somewhere yeah absolutely I mean we think about this as being well we've heard the argument before in say the the 1930s but actually we heard this argument before in the 1830s it's it's a kind of perpetual part of um, of life in an industrialized capitalist society basically that these are questions that are always with us and we never we never answer them to the satisfaction of everybody 
but we have at various points in time found answers that satisfy a large enough group of people for us to be able to um, to, to carry on. And it, it feels, I guess, like the last 10 years has been one of those periods where we have once again found an answer, but not an answer that satisfies a large number of people. And the process of austerity, the idea that actually we need to kind of pull away at this stuff, we're still living with the consequences of that of that now but you know that that did not satisfy people at the time even though in a kind of rhetorical sense it seemed to work although you know people aren't necessarily joining the dots in the way that they should do um you can't answer the question using austerity without really digging deep into people's lives and and you know whether it's potholes in the road or you know that kind of erosion of the public sphere is a direct consequence of the answer that was given about 10 years ago to the the questions that were being asked then yeah thanks very much chris true thanks the story of things snapshot podcasting a bite-sized insight into research at the university of york Produced by Philippa Gearing for Overtone Productions. If you want to comment, please tweet us at Uni of York.